all together. Hello and welcome to Covert Castaway. I'm Holly. Je suis Stéphane. Join us as we share what we learn and how we're making the transition to liveaboard cruising. It is so nice to meet you. We're excited to have this conversation. Thank you very much. Lovely to be chatting. Yes. So first of all, we're here with Catherine from Wild Travel Story to talk about sailing, some adventure, and also talk a little bit about, you know, health and staying healthy in fabulous places, um, which is a little bit about the book that we're going to talk about later. So maybe before we start, just tell us a little bit about yourself and, and where you're at. Thanks, Holly. Um, I am on our boat, Wild One, which is um, which is a Granger catamaran, and I'm living in Indonesia at the moment. We've been here almost a year. Oh, wow. Uh, with my daughter, Maya, my uh, partner, David, and we are slowly... Um, emphasis on the slow, traveling our way through Southeast Asia with plans to eventually get back to our starting point, but um, no real rush on that one. Um, And yeah, it's a beautiful, gorgeous, sunny day in Southern Lombok, which is the island just next to Bali. Um, And it's a really pretty spot here called Giliasahan. So that's where I'm talking to you from today. Yeah, I want to talk more about Bali because I think that's the the common thread here in this chat. Um, we just recently went there and oh my gosh, it was amazing. Um, but before we do that, um, maybe just talk a little bit about your project. Um, you do some sailing, you do some adventure, you, you guys do a lot of things. So I'd love to hear more about that. Yes, um, we've been living aboard for 20 years and um, our daughter Maya was born onto sailing boats um, three boats ago. So she's never actually lived in a house. And, oh, that's and so not- funny. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she is definitely 100% boat kid. Um, and David and I have never actually owned a house in our lifetime. So um, we've always uh, used boats as as both our our home and our adventure machine. Um, And although we do a lot of land-based adventures as well, that's our specialty as sort of extreme adventure travel. Um, I'm a journalist and David is a photographer. And so we've always used our boats um, to get to beautiful places and then really explore them in ways that we find enriching. So that might include um, hiking, uh, cycle touring, paddling, free diving, surfing, all kinds of um, water and non-water-based adventures. But we've made a life out of that. And um, I guess the combination of all of that sort of adventure travel and, and also living living a kind of um, minimalist lifestyle on the sea. So, you know, you're very detached from yeah. usual pulls of, of living in a city that we've been super conscious for years about um, living as close to nature as we can and really consuming only what is absolutely necessary in life. And that's easy to do on a boat because, of course, you're very conscious about um, how much you have um, because that compromises your sailability and also the functionality of your boat. Um, but also just being close to nature, you're very observant and very aware of your impact upon the world. And we've always been striving to reduce that footprint that we can happily call it now. But for a long time, 
we were really aware of that and living aboard just gave us that ability to to not need much and I guess all of those years of kind of living that way um, and enjoying um, free wind and free power and living off grid um, sort of culminated in the book that we've just written, The Hunter and the Gatherer, which is all about um, our efforts to live sustainably and to t- take a step back from yeah. that consumerism that is that is really tempting when you when you live a kind of um, high pressure life in a in a city or a town, and yeah. really breaking that down for other sailors and and showing them how easy it can be and how enriching it can be. Um, so, yeah, and food. Food is huge. You travel for food. Everyone does it three or four times a day. Um, but eating well and eating, enjoying really beautiful, wholesome, healthy food when you're sailing um, is not as easy as it might be when you can just pop down to the farmer's market every weekend or every few days. So we... We wanted to write about how we get it done, um, what we grow, what we sprout, what we ferment, um, how we preserve all of that fresh food that that you, you, you we just did it yesterday, traips to the market, you go around with all your shopping yeah. bags, everything, you come home, you wash it, you blanch it. <laughs> you know. yeah. um, so we wanted to show how to make all of those, um, all of that produce last. And then, of course, I know you guys are plant-based and, and I am too, but also um, how to become resourceful on the sea, you know, how to forage for seaweed and how to harvest coconuts and things like bush almonds and, and then, of course, how to, how to fish, get oysters, crabs, all of that other stuff that if you're lucky enough to be able to utilize it can really sustain you in a way that's super healthy and has a really tiny impact. Yeah. I want to go back to something you said cuz all of this is just super interesting. Um a couple things, you know, you you touched upon. One is um I think you said extreme expl- exploring, which I'm dying to know like what your top <laughs> three things were. Um but also, you know, would you characterize yourselves as more sailors or more explorers? And how do you think about that? Wow. Okay. I guess um, I guess we're explorers first, but um, because we've lived on boats um, longer than we haven't, um, we're definitely sailors. But I think um, for us, cruising is about more than just putting the sails up and, and enjoying the wind. It's really about getting to places that we find fascinating. And then, you know, when you're there, diving into that culture, diving into the, the ways of life and the food and the religions and the festivities and festivals and all of the natural stuff as well. Um, like in Indonesia, that sort of involves lots of diving and the volcanoes to climb. So, yeah, I, I mean, I love the sailing. We, you know, obviously we we do love the sailing and it's a fantastic lifestyle for us. But where sailing can take you, I think, is the really exciting wow. part for us. I think and, that's us yeah. too, right? Yeah, yeah. We definitely like remote places, taking our time to kind of learn about the culture. But I was a little bit curious about what are the ways you found that are kind of uh, – obviously staying a long period of time in one place will help you kind of to learn more about the culture, but 
do you find other ways that that helps you kind of get those little stories that really like stick with you and the rest of your life? Versus like do the touristy things, you know, that's the thing that we are, haven't found the right mix of, like you want to do the touristy things because that's what everybody talks about and, you know, tells you to go, but we really want to get close to the culture and the people. Maybe you can just chat a, a bit about that. Sure, sure. And um, we've been traveling on land, um, you know, land-based trips in Indonesia for a really, really long time, but our favorite places have been those places that are really remote. So I think if you want to deepen your connection to places when you travel, um, the best way to do that is to find yourself the only tourist in a scenario or mm. one of the few tourists in a scenario. And that certainly we've been traveling from um, the west coast of Papua in eastern Indonesia and gradually moving west. And um, as you get further west, um, you come into areas which are much more highly touristed mm. and but the thing is the advantages of being a sailor is that you can pull into bays even if you're in a really populated place you can pull into bays where there may be no tourism and the fact that you need to go ashore and you need fuel and food and um, all, all of those other ordinary daily life services you know, by speaking language um, and by, you know, talking to locals and ingratiating yourself into small villages and communities, even even simple ways, you know, by going on shopping trips <laughs> for the things yeah. that you need. Um, and the more you talk, the more language you learn and then the the deeper the connection you can make in a place. And I, I really think it's by putting yourself in those remote scenarios mm -hmm. where there, there possibly is no tourism anyway, um, but you're making your own fun because you're there, you're exploring, you've got coral reefs just a metre away from you yeah. and you've got lots of people to interact with and, you know, you put the kayaks in and and they're all um, paddling as well and, and you, you may not understand each other but you understand what you're both there for and you can have a lot of fun, particularly with kids, you know, the local kids and if you've got kids on board or you're sailing with um, boats that have got kids, they just open doors and I think those sort of interactions are the things that really stick in my mind. Um, it's nice to to join a trip and climb a volcano or, you know, there are some things yeah. that you don't really miss out when you're travelling for sure. But but really for me it's being in those remote places and being prepared to put yourself out there as well. You know, it takes a, it takes a little a little bit of um, endurance and guts to, to, to really go off the beaten track. But... I think most sailors would say that the interactions that they have on a personal level um, in communities and in the anchorages that they find themselves in are, are far more memorable than ticking off the bucket list things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I totally. And, you know, maybe you can also, there's, I want to talk a little bit about this fine edge. So there's this fine line between, you know, seeking remote places and putting yourself out there and putting yourself in maybe a potentially dangerous situation. Um, you know, there's YouTubers that talk about different places they go and then we'll ask around, Hey, would you go to Papua New Guinea? And people I know are like, I wouldn't, I wouldn't go there at all. Like avoid the place, you know? So that's an example. So, you know, how do you think about that? Well, um, yeah, Papua New Guinea is, is, um, still a bit of a sticking point. Um, the area that we've been is West Papua, which is actually, even though it is part of the island of Papua, it is it belongs to Indonesia, rightly or wrongly. Uh -huh. um, 
So that's, uh, and the West Papuans are are beautiful people unto themselves, just yeah. incredibly generous and and just a, a quiet, still, beautiful people. So um, I know that when you take on big passages, circumnavigations, you, you're going to come into areas which are potentially not so safe. Mm-hmm. In Indonesia, we've never had a situation where anyone's ever come onto the boat or um, threatened us in a way that we felt was um, was violent. So mm-hmm. um, I can only speak from experience here and say that, um, sure, we don't take our travels lightly and there's always some um, risk mitigation Mm-hmm. in every in the planning of every trip and and you know most of that is is things about weather and about um about right. the boat but also i mean particularly when you've got um a child or children on board you never want to be in a situation where things could go horribly wrong and sometimes unfortunately that happens um but mm-hmm. where we are now um indonesia is a, is a beautiful place to cruise and people are so generous Mm-hmm. Um, in having us here and and they're so they're so helpful you know when you bumble along in your bahasa in the markets and and you just get so much generosity and they're, they're such a fun loving sort of person that they like to laugh at you but they love to laugh at themselves so yeah. it's um I find it a I find it a really comfortable place to be yeah and um, yeah we've been really happy and lucky so far but yeah, look, security is always an issue, and I think that um, everybody makes decisions about which kind of passage they're going to take and what countries they might skirt around. But certainly, there are some unsafe places in the world um, where we might just be, as cruisers, we might be targeted just because we're in the wrong place at the wrong time. Yeah, that's a good perspective. So. And, and that's true. I mean, it's it's our perspective also. It's coming from the U.S. You know, also not not last year, the year before we were cruising in Turkey. And when you're from the U.S., you're like people are asking us like, was it safe? And and then we cruise the southern coast in Turkey, and and the the situation you're describing, the experiences were, were very similar. Yeah. And then we are flying back to the U.S. And then U.S. is a big country, but like you know. You you have like places like you know that are like you know not safe not at all, safe. and and they are like in in, yeah. in in kind of in San Francisco Bay Area, yeah. like in like parts of Oakland and stuff. So it's all relative. We we tend, I guess, as consumer of news, like you know, to to associate a country, and yeah. but then when you go to like local places in that country, then you know yeah. it's totally safe. So yeah, yeah. yeah let's yeah. talk about well, the, the other thing I wanted oh. to kind of understand a little bit because people are always curious about this. Uh, so you guys were nomad before it became popular post COVID, and I want <laughs> to kind of, uh, understand a little bit like how I mean, me as a journalist and and as David as a photographer, like are you guys being able to tr- combine basically your love for travel and adventure and make a living out of it? And then also, like, how has it changed, you know, post-COVID from that perspective? Well, um, post-COVID, things really took a dive um, for for us in terms of we had just released a a travel guide to um, uh, North Queensland, part of Australia at that time. And, of course, no one was travelling, so... Mm. um, That was perfect timing. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But... 
Uh, I've been badgering um, because obviously David and I, like we, we write books and also we work for a lot of magazines and um, online travel sites and we'd been badgering um, a couple of our editors to, you know, come on, it's time. Everybody's everybody's keen to travel. Everyone's keen to find out what's going on in the world and how things have changed. And just in the last few months, we've started to get some international assignments again. So that for us is is a big, big change. Um, cruising, we were in Indonesia cruising when um, COVID came about. And we stayed for a little while until um, things got a, a little bit uncertain where we were. So we uh, we sailed back to Australia and we were in Australia for a year, which was good. We used it as an opportunity to upgrade our boat. So we sold one and bought a, a more uh, round-the-world seaworthy vessel. And like so that. so that was good um but now we're we're back into it and I I think the biggest change that we've seen in Indonesia is that um a lot of businesses have failed a lot of their tourism has just collapsed uh particularly in the eastern areas that we've been traveling through which were uh under under uh touristed to start with so they they um, really appealed to a specific sort of adventurer. Um, so mm. those those hotels, every second hotel is just closed. Um, little tiny community-run resorts closed. Um, and you can still see that in Lombok now. Restaurants and resorts are just, you know, got their gates shut. Uh, but also I think more dramatically, and we really noticed this in Raja Ampat, which is a very famous diving area uh, for intrepid uh, adventurers, <laughs> that area we noticed um, the fish docks have just collapsed in that part of the world. And that was something that was really heartbreaking to us because, of course, when COVID hit, people who were perhaps running a small guest house or were working to transport divers around to different islands, um, travellers around, they suddenly had no work, no means of um, feeding their families. So everyone took to the sea. And you can see even in the conservation areas that those fish docks have just gone, just gone. Um, and where we would catch fish daily in those areas cruising around. Um, and the last trip, you know, that that is just no longer a, a possibility. So I would say that that is largely can be attributed to COVID and mm. to the decimation of people's livelihoods in that area. So, um, and I'm sure that that's, that's similar to, to a lot of seafaring communities around the world in all countries that um, COVID just took away a lot of livelihoods. And I'm really hoping that now that people are feeling more secure to start traveling again that 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 may that may turn around and I hope it does soon yeah I definitely we I want to talk I want to talk about Bali um we just went there because that was on our bucket list and we were in Australia and we we're thinking oh it's so close you know we'll just go to Bali but we were in Melbourne which is like the s- southern point of Australia <laughs> Australia it's like way bigger than you think it is or how it looks on a map um, but we got to Bali and it was popping. I mean, it was busy. And um, they were saying that uh, people were just really rushing to Bali and, and um, you know, starting to uh, do tourist uh, things again. And 
travel and and the people there were really happy about it because they could kind of you know start supporting their 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 families although what an amazing culture you know they were also expressing how they helped each other and i mean they're a delightful people i mean what you're describing is happy and joyful and light and kind and just everybody's smiling i was like wow how do you bottle that up you yeah. know it's amazing um, <laughs> the culture but one thing we also loved about it and one of the reasons we went is because we wanted to kind of you know we were sort of in some bad habits we were eating more sugar than we normally would i think we got attacked by tim tams while we were in australia <laughs> um, <laughs> oh. and, I know. So it's really addictive. It's so addictive. So we were like, okay, let's go to Bali. We can see Bali, which we always wanted to see. We could do some yoga, you know, and there's the ocean and lots of cool places to see and the people. And and um, so we went on a wellness retreat and and we did a whole like detox, which was sort of intense. Um, but what we were amazed by is just the abundance of good food options like raw options plant options you know the all the different kinds of foods that you can eat in that area and I was like wow I want to learn how to cook like this on the boat you know like I don't want to have to even start at the stove like how do I make these great raw food dishes which I hadn't really ever thought about before but you go there and it was just you know they were everywhere so what's your experience been and maybe you have some tips from um, the gatherer portion of your of your book on how to do that. Yeah, absolutely. Look, Bali is beautiful for that. Um, Indonesia as a whole is beautiful for that. But in particular, um, Bali benefits, I think, as much from its tourists um, mm-hmm. as as it as it has to give. You know, there's a there's a great symbiotic relationship there that um, tourists to Bali bring great ideas and bring a demand for 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 great cuisine. And I think those two groups really inspire each other. So um, Bali is a very special place. Um, for me, um, I was a vegetarian pretty much my whole life. And it was only when we started traveling to Indonesia the first time, and I was confronted with the plastics issue, which is not, it's not just Indonesia and Southeast Asia, which suffers from uh, a groundswell of ocean plastics. There are many, many, many parts of the world um, that have inadequate waste disposal and recycling programs that deal poorly yeah. with what's going into the sea. But it was so overwhelming and so fatiguing that it really threatened to kind of, you know, put a stop to <laughs> how I was living. I was really overloaded by it. And so our idea was just to remove plastic from our from our scenario as much as possible. And it, it started quite a few years before that with our daughter teaching her about how, how can we live more plastic free. And so we started to do plastic free gift giving. We started to do plastic free shopping. And mm. we've been living that way for for you know almost a decade insofar as we 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 call it nude food i know you were keen to yeah. talk about that Holly. Yeah. food um, trademark that yeah awesome. <laughs> actually I, I, there is actually a company that uh that does call themselves nude food oh, i think yeah. but it comes in a you know, well it may not come in plastic but i hope it doesn't um but nude food is basically anything that comes unpackaged so 
And really, it's it's ninety percent of what we all need to eat. You know, it's our proteins. We we can when we live on the sea, um, if we're resourceful enough, we can harvest uh, the seafoods and um, forage for the shellfish and and other goodies that we enjoy to eat. Um, but we can also, when we're shopping, we can also buy almost everything we need um, without plastic i mean yesterday we went shopping we bought eggs in our cartons um paper cartons um we bought all kinds of peanuts and rice and noodles and all of that kind of stuff in addition to fruits and vegetables which is a huge part of our diet um all in their nude skins so it's may not be convenient and it may be a more time consuming way to live but on the ocean we have time and you can make time. Uh-huh. So that's uh, that's kind of how we live. I mean, obviously there are some things that you choose to buy. I mean, we we like to have a drink. We're sailors after all. But we brew our own ginger beer, which means that there is no waste. Uh, we buy ginger. We buy all our spices. We brew it up. We pour it into bottles that we recycle, um, that we use time and time again. So it's all about creating uh, ways to utilise the things that we can, the products that we can buy that that don't come wrapped in plastic or in a bag um, and seeking out and supporting those places that offer us the chance to do just that, to take our own containers, to, to take our own bags um, and purchase things that when we get home, we don't have to fill a garbage bin just mm-hmm. in putting our groceries away. I think it's easy to live like that when you're on the sea. I know that it is for us. Um, it means going to the shops like, and buying yeah. ridiculous amounts of pumpkins and um, greens, but you can do it. You yeah. can do it and you can feel good about it. And so that's the whole thing about, about nude food. And raw food is great um, because you're also saving on gas, Holly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> there are so many delicious um, raw dishes that you can make yeah and you know it's not just salads and you know bliss balls there's lots and lots and lots of food um, which comes to you in its most nutritious form so yeah if Bali's taught you that then big tick for Bali yeah it's uh it's 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 amazing how many amazing delicious recipes there are either raw or plant-based once you start looking for them you know And, um, when you're introduced to different kinds of food, like when you, when you first go plant-based, which we've done over a decade ago, we're like, okay, guess we're having salad, you know, but then little by little, you learn how to cook like these amazing dishes that no one would have thought of, you know? So, so that's kind of one thing. Um, question for you. I think, I think in the West, there's this perception that if you, if you, if you're buying food that's pre-wrapped or pre-packaged, it's somehow, um, cleaner, you know, now we know that's not true, but, um, I think also, you know, if you're buying nude food in a grocery store in, in a, in a off the beaten path, there's steps to take. So you don't get little critters in your belly, which we discovered on our detox. Um, how do you, how do you clean and prepare your food once you bring it back on the boat? Holly, it's a little bit tedious. (laughs) I'll, I'll admit it. Um, look, everything is washed. Um, every single thing is washed. And I mean, like, you know, if I buy a bunch of herbs, that all gets washed and then it gets rinsed and then it gets dried 
and then it gets put in the fridge or the cupboards wherever it goes. So um, I have a great little helper, my daughter. (laughs) She's awesome. She's awesome on shopping days. Um, So we do all of that. And then, um, of course, and I've covered it in my book as well, how, how you treat your food to ensure that you that you're not bringing critters home. Um, and there's a number of ways you can do it. You can use oxygen absorbers. You can freeze your food. Um, I'm talking like flowers and nuts and lentils and beans and things like that. But look, to be honest, when it comes to trying to avoid the critters and trying to get the cleanest, you know, perhaps flour or rice, I have seen just as many critters in packaged foods. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, as there are in those open bins with everybody rummaging their hands around them. Yeah. Um, I, I look at it in that when you're buying rice, um, you're going to cook it. So, um, yes, you can freeze it and store it and put your oxygen absorbers in to ensure that the, the critters aren't, um, the critters will do you no harm. I mean, we're talking weevils and things like that, but, um, but you don't want them to get into everything. So you can properly store, I put everything in glass. Yeah. And um, you can proper, properly store things. Nuts and things can go in the fridge and in containers, you know, uh, keep everything in glass. Um but the thing is that um, like with peanuts, I'll bring them home and I'll just roast them and I use those to make um, peanut butter or for snacking or, you know, chopping up for, you know, salads and meals and cakes and things like that. Um, those those things, I would prefer to buy them unpackaged. I would prefer to buy them. And a lady in the market did tell me cheekily that don't worry because the weevils crawl to the bottom of the barrel. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, it's all those, but it's like, I guess after this detox, I'm a little OCD about the food because of the parasites and stuff you learn about. Um, you know, but, but your stomach is full of hydrochloric acid. So, you know, that's the good news. Um, and, and we've evolved to this point, you know, and we're still alive. So, yeah, but I think on a boat too, just with the moisture and the, um, you know, in the tropics, you know, things can go sideways quickly. Um, you know, I'm sure you have a ton of tips in your book, but any top tricks that you want to share in terms of just being able to either keep food longer or, or even grow, grow food on board? Growing food on board. I'm glad you touched on that. I mean, the storing food, yes, there's heaps of tips in the book for it. Um, the thing is that you've just got to prepare everything properly and check it, check it daily. I, I go through all my stuff and I go, oh, there's a few tomatoes that need using. So use those few tomatoes. Oh, the potatoes need using. Okay, that's what we'll eat today. Um, growing food on board, um, I know people will go, oh, I live on a mono and it's really small and we live on a lean. Um, there are there are, there are are some circumstances which can make growing tricky. I'm, I'm lucky I've got a catamaran, so um, as much as my partner Dave would go, oh, these pots are in the way, I love them. I think that <laughs> growing your own food means that it's fresh and it's available and you go outside and I'll say to Maya, can you go snip me some blah, blah, and she'll go out and give everything a little bit haircut and bring it in and and that we toss that straight into our salad and so th- all of those issues we talked about with bugs and pests and you don't you don't have to go anywhere to get your food now there are things you can grow and things you can't grow um i i wouldn't tackle anything that grows down into the soil like yeah. potatoes and carrots um but certainly you know quick dry, quick growing herbs and greens and lettuces and rockets and bok choy and 
And all of those green veggies, they're really easy to grow on a boat. Um, we grow tomatoes. We just had the most monstrous <laughs> crop of tomatoes. Oh, my goodness. On a boat? Oh, my gosh. The tomato bushes were as bad as big as my daughter. Um, oh my but <laughs> but once they're growing, you can't you can't compromise them. <laughs> <You're stuck laughs> once they're blooming. Um, but yeah, growing on your boat is a hell of a lot easier than you than you'd think. And um, and it's so enjoyable. I know a lot of people say, Oh, it's a real heartache for me leaving my little piece on land and going onto the boat because I miss sticking my hands in the soil and I I miss whispering to something and encouraging it and and enjoying it food and that's what gardening can do it's just that connection to soil and yeah. it's a beautiful thing that that everything is there just waiting for you and it changes and it grows and and it feeds you so I'm a, I'm a big fan but I I do know that even if you're even if you've got a tiny space and you are living on a lean um, potted herbs add a huge mm. amount of flavor to food and yeah. toss through salads and you don't need to be growing a lot to really flavor up your food with something fresh. Mm-hmm. I want to go back to something you said too, as we sort of start to wrap up is, um, you know, what you said was, you know, it's, it's, easy to live sustainably and self-sufficiently, you know, on a boat. And we definitely found that to be true. Like all the stuff that we thought we were going to need, we may, you know, we maybe used half of. And so the second time around on our second boat, we're taking even a more thin approach to what we're putting on board. Um, can you elaborate a little bit, like as you've gone on to new boats, cause it's easy to accumulate stuff, you know, once you, once you get on there, but um, how have you, really been focused on, um, you know, minimalism, I guess, and, and just being in harmony with nature. Yeah. I think I'm, I really hate going to the shops, Holly. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not, yeah, unless unless it's a chandlery. Um, but look, I'm not someone who enjoys having a lot of stuff. I enjoy having a little bit of stuff and I've got a great friend who's a traveler. And she says that she works very hard to own very little. And I think that's true. And it's not about constantly throwing out what you have. It's about stopping yourself from buying things that you do not need or that you already have. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with wearing an old T-shirt. Who are we all impressing? Um, Sailors do this very well. Um, (laughs) Some more than others. Or no (laughs) T-shirts. Absolutely. You know, we don't mind wearing a seven-year-old T-shirt just so long as we've got, um, you know, navigational equipment that is was made yesterday. Um, So I think it's, yeah, look, it's all about just stopping yourself and just and really redressing that whole idea of what makes you happy. Because when sailing... It's not going to um, a uh, shopping centre on a Saturday morning and having your coffee and having a meal out and then, you know, spending a whole bunch of money on things that you already have in your wardrobe um, and then going out and drinking and eating. You know, okay, we do that as well but uh, when we're sailing. But it's really about finding out what makes you happy. And I think that's easy when all of those pulls are taken away. Yeah and your family and your friends and it's about finding things that you find pleasurable whether it's you know an early morning swim or getting out um, with your yoga mat on the deck when no one's around at 5 a.m and and just finding what makes you happy because then those other things are not necessary in life and Mm. you 
you end up living on a boat very comfortably with little, but just having a much richer life and enjoying enjoying your food, enjoying preparing good food instead of going out and getting takeaway and rushing it down or, or sitting in restaurants. You know, if you've, if you've got good food at your disposal and lots of interesting ways to cook it, you mm. can really enjoy your evenings um, without feeling that you have to go to a restaurant or be yeah. somewhere than where you are. It's so true. And I, I think I was asked one time by somebody and I don't remember who was, um, you know, doesn't your world get really small when you, you live on a boat? And I was reflecting on that um, as, as you were talking. And I feel like, at least for me, like the world got bigger because all of the clutter and nonsense is gone. Yes. And you're left with everything that's important. And, um, you know, suddenly all the things, it, it just becomes so clear what's important and what's not important. Um, and that's one of the things I really like about, about living on the boat and being on the boat in, in the ocean, because, you know, you can just have such a deep connection with yourself and, and what you're really all about and with, with the ocean and with nature, um, which is pretty incredible. So, um, okay. Yeah, before really hit that. That's so true. Yeah. Okay. So as we wrap up, I'm dying to know, um, your top two or three like biggest wow moments or biggest adventure moments that you've had so far? Whoa, gee. I know, it's so hard. <laughs> That's really hard. Um, look, I think I think for me um, big wow moments to do with the boat would be um, Raja Ampat is just a beautiful part of the world and the and the diving and snorkeling is fantastic but swimming with whale sharks with my family um and no one else around no tour operators just in the water with two beautiful amazing creatures just swimming around us was probably the highlight of all the wildlife encounters all the tigers and the elephants and the rhinos and everything else that we've been so lucky to see um, so that, yeah, where that sorry, where was that again? So on the West Papuan coast, there's a place called Triton Bay okay. and it's very well known for whale sharks at a particular time of the year. So, um, yeah, it's, it's beautiful. And anyone heading to Indonesia who's starting over in the Eastern side should definitely put Triton Bay on their list. I, I, I was reading, uh, on your website, a story when you were a kid back in Australia and you were swimming in a place where there were some crocodiles or like, I, I guess they were like, uh, I don't know, maybe not dangerous, but your mom played a joke on you where she grabbed your foot. Oh, my mom is the biggest prankster. And then, then I'm thinking like, oh, now you're exposing your daughter <laughs> to like, you know, crazy adventures the same way your mom uh, did this back to you <laughs> when you were That's young. That's interesting. I didn't realize that I was continuing the cycle. <laughs> and I think it's a pattern overall. I've noticed this, you know, as we age older, like we things like we, we look we look at our, parent, our parents when we're young and we're like, oh, why did you do this? And then, and then we find ourselves kind of, you know, it suddenly makes sense. <laughs> yeah. Um, any other big wow moments that come to mind for you? Oh, another Indonesian one, um, I guess, would be the first time we encountered wild orangutans. Orangutans are an amazing species, and oh, wow. and they're 
they're highly endangered and, and highly vulnerable to extinction in Indonesia as a result of many factors, but the main one being palm oil plantations. Mm-hmm. But we um, were in Kalimantan and Dave, my partner, was filming, um, well, we were in search of filming orangutans, but instead of going to, um, you know, a kind of a refuge or one of the feeding stations, we wanted to go into a national park and it was a place called Katai National Park. And we spent a few days with uh, sleeping in a little ranger's hut um, on the floor with a little mosquito net on and going out with a guide and some scientists to who were studying these orangutans. Anyway, we were really lucky to see orangutans, but mostly they stay in the very tops of the canopy. But on this occasion, the grass was very, very high. So I had picked up Maya, my daughter, and I was sort of holding her on my hips so that she wasn't in the grasses, which were sort of up to my chest. And all of a sudden, this female orangutan came thundering down, you know, a hundred feet down this tree. And there, they can be very aggressive. She had two children. So she had a, a, about a seven-year-old infant. And then she had a newborn who was the tiniest, almost naked, just with a little bit of amber hair in a Mm. little halo around its body, tiniest little creature. And she had this baby orangutan on her back and she thundered down in in split second and I went through the full spectrum of emotions of fear of defensiveness thinking she could kill me if she wanted to and she stopped a meter away from me dead still looked me straight in the eye picked her baby from the behind her back and showed her to me while I was holding my oh my gosh that's my the hair on the back of my neck just tingled and I was it was euphoric I was close to tears and I'm convinced to this day that she had seen Maya with her crazy messy blonde hair going everywhere and had come down to have a look and to look at Maya to show me her baby and she stayed like that just eyes just transfixed for minutes, 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 minutes before slowly she put her baby back on her shoulder and, and started to climb back up. And the next day when we, when we went back into the forest, she was there and she, she let us, she sort of came down and she stayed just above our heads and made a little nest and fed and played with her baby and just let us be there. Um, And that kind of connection was just astronomical. I'm wow. so grateful for those kind of wild encounters that you can have once you, once you weigh anchor and you go somewhere a bit more special. Yeah, that's amazing. I, just you telling the story, I can I can feel the moment, but I can only <laughs> imagine what it was for you. <laughs> yeah, what an incredible moment. Yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. That's, that's amazing. Yeah, it has been such a pleasure to chat with you. Um, where Thank can people you. find you and find your book? Um, yeah, so we're uh, wildtravelstory.com. That's us. Um, and you can uh, find it there, The Hunter and the Gatherer. It's um, it's not only a cookbook, there's 160 recipes in it, but it's also lots of provisioning tips for people who are keen to set sail, but also keen to do it in a way that um, creates a tiny footprint and, and loads of ideas for how you might be able to make some of those really small changes um, on your sailboat that 
can really have a huge impact on the life that you lead once you get cruising. Mm-hmm. Well, the other thing that, yeah, if you can touch on that, because it was very interesting to hear, like, because people, you know, we've talked about, you know, how to live and, and in harmony and with our surroundings, but uh, yeah, people might say, oh, well, you're printing books and, but you're working with the foundation. And, and I thought that was very interesting uh, for every book that's being sold. Can you elaborate a little bit on, on this approach? I- Absolutely. So um, for every book sold, um, the publishing company um, plants, well, they work with a group called um, Eden Reforestation Projects. So for every every book sold, one tree is planted. And the beauty of that is that uh, they've worked out that a book creates the carbon footprint of our cookbook is about 2.5 kilos but one tree offsets 10 times that amount every year that it's alive. Mm. So for every book sold, they plant a tree and they work with this group called Eden Projects um, and you can have a look at them online. But in the first year, they planted 1.7 million trees and now they've planted in excess of 33 million trees and they're reforesting uh, some mangroves in Indonesia on um, an island called Biak, it's just off the West Papuan coast. Mm-hmm. And that's where they're working um, to reforest mangroves because Indonesia um, is responsible for about 23% of the world's mangroves. And um, so much of that is at risk. So this is a really important project. I mean, mangroves are not sexy. I love mangroves. They're beautiful places. Mm-hmm. Um but they're a really important part of our ecosystem and I'm sure all sailors will have had more exposure to mangroves than they might have had other kinds of vegetation ecosystems. Um, so we're really proud of that. So, you know, everyone wants to find ways that they can um, make an impact and your dollar should work for you. It's your money. You, you should spend it in ways that um, creates change in the world. So it's something that um, we're really proud of and really proud to be involved with. Um, and it's just a simple thing and it's so easy to do. I absolutely love that, Catherine. And it's been such a joy to speak with you and um, get to know you better. And, and hopefully we can we can meet you out on the ocean someday. That would be so great, guys. It's been a pleasure. I could probably talk to you all day long. I know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, fair winds for now. And thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. Thank you, guys. It's been lovely. Thank you for listening. If you like this podcast, please subscribe, like, or share with another covert castaway. Fair winds for now. Ah!